Currently, uh, many teams, startups, and opinion leaders try to use uh, decentralization term as some kind of a buzzword. For you, what is a decentralization, both on algorithmic and uh, philosophical way, in, in order to build a human-centric centered web? So it's, <clears throat> it's easy to think of uh, human institutions and technology and what we create as being... Um, complex systems. And when we think about them complex systems, we have to realize that there's a lot of different ways of designing complex systems. And what we've discovered with software is that bottom-up approaches work better. And so what I think about when I think about decentralization is I think about building a set of technologies that work the way humans work. And so the concepts of things like the mass media are really a 20th century conception of bringing everybody together. But what we have with people, with communities, with different sort of ideas of how you relate and how you identify is something that's much less centralized. And so what we're looking at in technology is building, using cryptography and peer-to-peer uh, -peer networks and um, sort of distributed databases, a way of creating technology that reflects how at least I want people in society to work. Um, I would love to talk about uh, social networks in general. Uh, okay. You um, were behind IDEO would uh, build uh, on working on Twitter. Uh, you worked okay. in Yahoo. Um, uh, sure, you, you use Facebook. Um, how do you think, what kind of a troubles we have today with the uh, companies like Facebook and Twitter, do you think that it became some kind of a monopolist would have the, too much uh, rights, but at the same time, uh, people are not customers anymore, but more kind of a source of data. For instance, Facebook can uh, simply remove your account without any responsibility. Uh, hopefully, LinkedIn provide you with the right to give your data back, but there is no such right in Facebook. So what do you think the key challenges in order to build actually modern way uh, to uh, build uh, social networks? So I mean, first off, realize that the, the people running LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram and YouTube, they're all actually really well-meaning and working hard to create good institutions and good spaces for people. So, they're not bad people, but they're structured in such a way where they're given sort of unreasonable constraints. What they've done is created a space that is like a shopping mall. So it is a commercial space that is, feels public. It feels shared and owned by everyone, but the legality of it 
and the structure of it isn't a shared public space where you have civil and political rights. What it is is, is a, a artificially created commercial space um, like a, a large shopping mall, like a commercial center, where you think you have rights, but you don't actually have rights. And so what they're trying to do is govern this impossible problem of how do you regulate speech? How do you regulate human behavior if you're a private for-profit company? And they've, they've invested a lot in doing it right. But it's, there's no way you can create a single set of rules that govern the norms for a group of gay men in Berlin and uh, tribal people in Bolivia and um, you know suburban uh, communities in the United States. Like the, the like, there's no set of norms that can make sense, and handing it off to a government that is run by a private company doesn't work, and what we've looked at the way we're governing the larger internet is saying that we shouldn't regulate too much on this. But the problem is someone, we need tools to regulate. And so the, they're really well-meaning, but they also are stuck on a couple things. They're stuck on a, a business model that is either driven around advertising. So they're selling you to the advertisers, they're selling your attention, or it's driven around your data. And what we're seeing now is there's a big debate in these large centralized social media companies about whether or not there's more money to be made in your data versus your, uh, your eyeballs. And what I think we need to do is we need to create a sustainable public sphere around social media that's not sustained by either your data or advertising, but rather sustained by a few things, sustained by users providing their own computational power to the network. So I host on my phone the data of my friends and the people I'm following, and they have a reciprocal hosting of it the other direction. So because it's reciprocal, neither one of us needs to pay, but we're both contributing sort of immaterial labor, immaterial technology to this running of the network. The other part of it is saying we need a way in which we're able to have economic transactions happen on these networks, but they have to happen in a way that supports uh, creators directly. And so you need something that's more like a, a, a membership model where people pay a subscription, they pay their supporters, and this is sort of the Patreon type model, or in the United States, public and community radio, where people become members and supporters. That model of media sustainer sustains publications that wouldn't like that don't violate the trust and sort of pollute the the relationships that either advertising or data mining do recently mit has started a data ethic course uh, for investors uh, for inventors yeah. and, uh, and currently uh 
we see uh, the agenda when we uh, teach engineers uh, to be coders in data companies, not managers of data. So it's a kind of a coders mindset. So yeah. I would love to ask you, uh, what is view on such courses? How you deal with your team, with your engineers, uh, how you teach them to be uh, ethically correct to data of the users? Sure, so we teach, we teach uh, lawyers ethics and uh, in some countries, uh, the, the teaching of ethics is very important to the process of being an engineer. So for example, in Canada, you have an oath of the engineer, you have a ring that reminds you of your ethical responsibility, but that doesn't exist in the United States where I live. And I think it's important to incorporate that. It's important to have an idea of sort of how do we make space for, how do we create this idea that we need to think about the ethical implications of what we're creating. And in general, I think that many software engineers who are building stuff are quite ethical. If you look at the, the ethics around free software, you look at the, the movement that the Electronic Frontier Foundation has managed to create, there's a lot of ethics there. And in the, the people who know how to create and shape and design systems, there's tremendous power. But what we haven't done a great job of is connecting that ethics to any kind of individual or collective action in what we build and design. And so um, I think that we need to continue to be teaching that and I think that we need to be doing sort of community education around it and I think it's an important role in the computer science and computer engineering programs because they aren't doing enough of it. You worked uh, with the MIT Media Lab. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, you have a significant practical experience in engineering. How would you say, uh, do we have some kind of gap between academia knowledge and reality than people just graduated from uh, MIT, Stanford, and other technical institution and go to the companies like Amazon, Google? Do we have such gap or basically it's veil aligned with reality? No, no, it's, it's, there's a massive gap. And... Uh, it's in some ways a gap that's not, that has no political implications whatsoever. So uh, most computer science and computer engineering programs don't teach you much of what you need to build, to be a professional engineer. They don't teach you uh, around unit testing. They don't teach you around planning. They don't teach you around um, source control systems, although that's changing some, there's, a, there's this sort of, they teach you the science of building software, which is not the engineering of building software. And it's very odd because if you get a degree in civil or mechanical engineering or chemical engineering, they teach you a lot about what it is to be a civil or mechanical or chemical engineer. Whereas in computer science, they teach you algorithmic analysis and not how do you decide like how to put together this and how do you refactor code. So without the ethics aside, we're doing a terrible job of teaching people the practice of being a professional software engineer. But we're also teaching people poorly about how do you decide stuff? How do you structure the teams? How do you figure out what to build? Um, what's the course of your career? And I think that, and like, how do you make that ethically powerful? One of the neat parts about the MIT Media Lab, and there's a lot of different research groups within it, is that it's about 
bridging that gap, bridging the gap between the social sciences, the hard engineering, and sort of industry. And so I came in as someone who has been having practice in industry and participated in a bunch of projects around the idea that we should be teaching the grad students who are coming through how to understand where they're going in industry. And that's why the Media Lab has been particularly effective at taking research projects and then shaping uh, the larger world. Things like the streaming video we're using now, MPEG and things like that. That all comes out of the Media Lab's goal of bridging practical, building things with understanding the theoretical and political context of what you're creating. Uh, you mentioned very important uh, moment that MIT Media Lab connect uh, social scientists with computer scientists in order to eliminate width gap. Um, how do you think, do we need some kind of a social scientist in residence in companies? Because in most cases, tech guys go in, in order to, became, to become engineers. At the same time, uh, social science people became growth hackers, marketers, but we have no people who actually uh, responsible for criteria of technology. With, for instance, we recently talked about why we have a, a facial recognition bias, why we have a, uh, other biases in technology. And uh, we decided that we have an actual gap between meanings, philosophy, and what we would love to achieve, and guys who are responsible for technology itself. So uh, how who would we solve it on actual tech teams and what you do in your um, team as well? So it's really important to think about the structure of the team and who's in the room and who's working on it and what their backgrounds are, are gonna shape what we build. We build. Um, I'm, I'm sure you've come across this uh, Conway's Law, which says the, the technology that an institution creates reflects the, the, the structure of the institution that creates it. And that's why we see government software working different from Silicon Valley startup software, working different from uh, open source projects. So it's important to think about what is the education background of the people on the team and how do they work together and how do we structure that? And um, it's not easy because we come up with a bunch of biases. We have a bias about uh, who, who in the room on a technology team is more valuable. And it, this is sort of the the more technological you are, the deeper the level you can go into the code, the more value you have in what should be built and the more say. And what we need to do is say that that, that deep technical knowledge is valuable, but the other skills are also really valuable. The skills of the designer, the skills of the, the product person, and um, having a, a diversity of backgrounds is really important. And we actually see a whole class of people who everyone thinks has a computer science degree, but really they have a liberal arts degree, people who are self-taught. And I think well-managed teams have a balance of those skills. Uh, let's talk social networks and fake news. Uh, recently, we had a talk with uh, Wikipedia, Jake Orlovitz, and we discussed that uh, while we have a info, uh, we have an epidemic, uh, COVID-19. At the same time, it turned to some kind of infodemic because we have a tons of uh, 
fake news in Facebook groups, in uh, WhatsApp groups, and uh, some people just spread information what's not correct or just kind of disinformation or misinterpretation of particular facts or just lie. So um, I would love to ask you how uh, could we fix it and how do you see it in your work? Sure. So, so one of the things is like, what are we optimizing for? When we, when, we, when we build these systems, the people who optimize for engagement, optimize for people coming back, optimize for amount of time spent, uh, those systems win, optimize for virality. And the problem is that uh, viral content doesn't care whether or not it's true. And we need to build into our systems the ability to back check things in ways that actually work. So simply stating, so someone posts something and then you state that it is not true, actually reinforces people's belief in that not true thing, which is, is really interesting. So if you believe that chemtrails are a conspiracy to control the weather, and um, then any data or any facts from anybody about how that is not true reinforces your belief that it is true. What changes your mind is not the way in which Facebook, Twitter, and the government has all been trying to do this, which is just like, well, here, you're, you're wrong. We'll give you, you know, verified facts about vaccinations or about, you know, whether or not the COVID-19 was a bioweapon, everything else. Those giving people facts has the opposite effect. So what, and that's the sort of very rationalist way of handling it, where you're like, well, you're wrong, so I'll tell you the thing that's right, and then you will change your mind. People don't work that way at all. We all are essentially tribal. So we believe the people who we are connected to and who we trust. And sometimes that's a government official because we make this mind game where we connect to that government official and we pretend like they're in our social circle and we start to trust them. But usually who we trust is around existing social relationships. Um, and so it's important to, to think about how we can do that in a way that doesn't have the platforms creating this, but instead has the sort of the people who you might trust sharing and posting and, and updating all this stuff. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Uh, let's talk uh, algorithms. Um, recently, uh, Wikipedia founder uh, have started uh, Wikipedia Tribune or Wikipedia Social. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, it's some kind of a coming back to human curation and using more uh, human-driven approach to how to curate and control data and information. Um, uh, at the same time, over the years, we have a contrary a tendency on Facebook and Twitter, more machine learning, more AI, more automatic in order to show personalized advertising and content. How do you think uh, today we should be focused on combination or more human curation? So how we should build social networks? So I think the problem is not that Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and Snapchat and Instagram and YouTube have algorithms. Like there is too much data 
and we as individuals can't possibly consume it. It's like years per minute uploaded of YouTube videos. It's crazy. So we need algorithms. And even if it's just, these are the people you follow and this is their posts in chronological order, that is an algorithm. It's just a very simple one. What we need to do is instead of saying there's a single set of algorithms or there's a single company that opaquely decides what your algorithm is, we need to open that machine learning system that happens with the algorithms and we need to put people back in control so that you then have a variety of choices of which algorithms will decide what you see and you can choose between them and you cannot, you don't, people aren't going to understand how the algorithms work but you can see the results of the algorithms. And so you could see a couple different sets of algorithms and just like you would have a plug-in to your browser or you know, modif you know, changing the visual interface of your computer or putting a background image, you can choose which algorithms you do and different groups of people can create algorithms for different purposes. And I think that's where we need to go because the, all of the studies and the metrics say that uh, people keep using systems with stronger machine learning algorithms that define what they do and surface the relevant content. So the problem isn't that that's happening. The problem is who's creating it and why and what they're optimizing for. And so we need to control those algorithms and put it back in a place where it's a pluggable system where people can decide which algorithmic system they're using. Um, and since we started to talk about algorithms, um, uh, when we use machine learning and use personalization, uh, we always have a chance to uh, go to a thing which is called filter bubble or information bubble. Then the whole experience is personalized to myself and it's always the same as a kind of a safe ecosystem. Uh, for instance, I follow particular people and uh, system recommends me the same type of content every time. So um, I would love to ask you, how do you define a successful uh, social network today in terms of uh, uh, organic and genuine experience for people in terms of uh, uh, some level of safety, but at the same time, some kind of a variety of content I see? So I, th I think the filter bubble question is is a is quite tricky so i think people we are tribal like humanity is tribal we have a couple hundred thousand years of history of humanity where we were tribal and a cup you know ten thousand years of living in cities and towns with agriculture and a couple hundred years of living with media and a couple dozen years of living with sort of mass media, you know, where any person can get access to anyone else online. So what works for us is that thing that's existed for a couple hundred thousand years. Like it feels super comfortable. And so, uh, but what we also need to do is we need to design that for understanding the way in which People can end up in cults, can end up in sort of different kinds of sort of religious groups that end up with very strong ideology of insider-outsider behavior. And we need to design systems that take that sort of negative social behavior that provides support and, and happiness and meaning to people, but then doesn't alienate and dehumanize the other. And so how we do that is quite tricky because we have online we have a collapsing of context 
So when you when you meet someone in person and uh, you don't already have endorphins rushing, so you're not in an argument, but you meet them, you connect to their face, you read their expressions, they read you, you see each other's common humanity. And so even if they would say a, a view or perspective that might feel very wrong to you, you have this built connection. But when you read stuff online, it's disembodied from the person who has it. And it's easy to pile on to people and get these sort of brigading type activities. And so uh, one of the things that works is finding ways to build that human connection. So systems that do video chat, systems that show faces, systems that show reactions, those I think do a better job of kind of sort of rehumanizing what we're doing. But we, it, you know, and I think we need a balance of this is this supportive insular community that you can feel at home in and space by which people you can trust bridge you out to other ideas. It's quite tricky. Um, and, you know, I don't know that uh, we definitely don't have the answers. Let's talk um, policies and laws um, in terms of uh, data. Uh, currently, uh, we have a tendency that governments and multilateral organizations, specifically in Europe, became very active in terms of a development policies in order to protect uh, people uh, privacy, for instance, is a GDPR in Europe. So um, I would love to ask you uh, how to build social network in order to make it accessible to every country and, and avoid any kind of problems in terms of uh, alignment with the uh, local policies, because it's still not the same in different countries. Yeah, and it's super hard because, for example, GDPR is a massive, massive step forward in terms of protecting people's privacy and giving them rights. So it's great. And yet my understanding of talking to like German lawyers and judges who do intellectual property and sort of privacy law is that a system like planetary where uh, we use this scuttlebutt protocol that's decentralized so that the, the data processing is controlled on your phone. It's not on a cloud or everything else. And what that means under German law is that you are a data processor. And so you should legally go register who your data protection agent is in whatever German state your phone is in. And if you were to take a train across Germany, you would legally have to find a person in every state your train passed through and register it with that state office over who your data protection officer is to protect the data of the, the, the friends and the people you follow on your phone because you process the data and then pass it on to others. So they, unfortunately, these laws and regulations that are about protecting people are written around a particular economic and technological model and the existing players who are in place are uh, essentially able to do through industry capture of this regulation, sort of lock themselves into a power position so that uh, new technologies, which would be better at preserving people's privacy and controlling it, uh, become legally questionable. And so I think it doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep doing that regulation, but I think that 
like we need to be very careful because uh, we can end up basically uh, regulating our way out of being able to do any innovation that makes things better and reinforce the power of the existing players. Let's talk uh, social networks as a catalyst of uh, actions and activism. Uh, you're known for uh, some projects related to politics. And I would love to ask you about your opinion about uh, digital grassroots platforms like Fight for the Future, um, platforms which allows to create a petition like uh, change.org. How do you think um, it, uh, are such platforms enough uh, in order to facilitate awareness or action, or is it just a kind of a first step in order to build something which work to actually tap some problems, fight some political uh, challenges, and so on? So I think that uh, the advocacy platforms, uh, change.org, and uh, groups like Avaz, which is halfway between an advocacy organization and, and a platform, or the Electronic Frontier Foundation, or the ACLU, there's a whole wide variety of them. And I think that they've been fairly effective at using those tools to do a particular kind of organizing. And it's around uh, mobilizing a lot of people to take a low level action to change a set of policies or bring awareness. And so, that's been really good, and that's important work. Where I think uh, the other half of it, which totally happens but we're not so aware of, is the way in which smaller groups of people end up with collaborative tools where they can start working with people they don't know and build stronger social relationships and connections. So um, we've seen it with uh, COVID-19, where uh, all across the world, uh, people come together and find new connections and do in-depth work. Either that's mutual aid networks to uh, keep track of who is needy in your own community and make sure that they are not having to be a vulnerable person going to the supermarket, but someone goes and gets them groceries and brings it to them, to making sure that everyone has food, to everyone has a safe place to live. Those sort of processes are organized more like things like mailing lists, um, Zoom chats, Facebook groups, uh, all these kind of like uh, Reddit, subreddits. These are sort of smaller groups where people can build a more in-depth relationship as opposed to mass advocacy. And I, I, I think that's super powerful. We don't realize that that's a major part of activism online. And a major thing that like, we couldn't do before. Like a hundred years ago, if you wanted to organize a movement, you literally had to travel around and give talks in public spaces, or you could write a newsletter that tried to use those existing networks to try and do it. So it was very hard to organize. Um, and now that connection and those organizing is much easier and we can build networks in a different way. Um, there's a, a set of theories about like the power of cities and they say that there's a sort of a power law in the city so the bigger a city gets the more innovative the city is because you get all these people who can get ideas and cross connections and collaboration and things like that and so you have cities becoming sort of nucleus of cultural and technological and economic innovation what the internet gives us 
is the ability to find the equivalent of the same people in your city, but they could be all over the world. Usually divided up by sort of language and time zone a bit. But, um, and so that's super powerful. And I think we need to, uh, when we think about social change, think about giving people tools to collaborate and get to know each other and work not just in the sort of clicktivism, send an email, send a phone call, do this kind of sign a petition, reshare this thing, but how do we convert those people into groups that can then collaborate on building things and build relationships between them? Uh, sometimes you call yourself um, as a tech anarchist. Uh, yeah. So um, I would love to ask you, how do you think uh, is uh, actual technologies an inventor and never belong left or right or center is in some kind of a um, beyond any kind of meanings because it's always about some kind of a logic pragmatism and not political agenda or it's something different for you so to me the technology we create is a reflection of the people who create it our institutions are it, and so and then it then shapes the people that use it. So we, when we create a system, we embed the values of the creators in that system. We shape it, we think about how it works. Does it have a strong uh, approval authorization system? Is it uh, super easy, things go viral? Uh, is it, uh, do you need to have special software to do it? Like we, we put our values into it. But then when we use the technology we create, it shapes us. Just like the language you're speaking shapes your way of thinking in that language, or the people you spend time with shapes your values and how you act around them. The technology we use, especially now that we're all stuck at home using digital technology, it shapes, it's like a set of colored glasses. It shapes the way we view the world. And so myself as an anarchist, I say that I think that I believe in, in personal autonomy and in collective action and that I think that people are happier and more successful and more innovative when ideas come from the bottom up as opposed to being told by an authority of what to do. And so uh, I try and build systems that encourage those kind of healthy bottom up ways of people doing actions, of creating mutual aid to support each other, of not needing permission from others to take action, um, of creating a system by which accountability can be held in a social way among a community in which you participate, as opposed to a set of arbitrary rules given on high. And so I try and build systems that I think uh, encourage a particular kind of open, decentralized, participatory, accountable, a uh, set of sort of value politics. And I, I build into the decisions of how the technology works and how the team that builds it, uh, things that I think encourage and push society in that direction. And now I would love to talk uh, tech entrepreneurship. Um, you're in tech since uh, late 19s. You were uh, behind a team that built Twitter. So you were, were close to many founders uh, in this area. Now you're a founder. Um, so uh, do you think that uh, we have a, a shift 
from the um, uh, individuals, sometimes a bit rebellious, sometimes very independent, who have a big vision, to some kind of a Polish guys uh, graduates who came through Y Combinators. And for instance, there is a interesting program in Europe. Uh, it's called Entrepreneur First. They really work like a manufacturing of entrepreneurs. They have a goal to um, produce about 100 of entrepreneurs uh, every year. So it's about kind of production, not some kind of independent way, your own experience, sometimes not polished, not ideal, but always driven by your story, particular challenges. So what do you think about the shift, what you see uh, over your journey? It's a fascinating thing. So I think that the, the various, I have all sorts of contradictory feelings. Because on some level, I think that these things like Y Combinator or the Techstars or all these incubators do a good job of, of sharing a set of culture of how you do things and how you work. And they give people space to go who might not learn it through other social connections. So in some level, it's democratizing access to these things. Um, on another level, entrepreneurship is fundamentally about not asking for permission. And so the, the problem with something like uh, Y Combinator is it says, if you find this committee of people who can decide whether or not you get included and you get accepted into the program, then you will be successful. And starting businesses or changing the world is not about that at all. It's about saying that like, it actually, the only things that matter is, can you make it work? And, uh, you know, I have all these values about society I'm doing and the institutions I'm creating, but the rules of business are super simple. Like, bring in more money than you spend because then you get to keep going and don't break any laws in such a way that stops you from doing business. And like, as long as you do those two things, and we've discovered that if you bring in lots of money and you're like Uber or Facebook or all these other ones, you know, uh, Bolt that did all the, the scooters all over the place, or, you know, if you bring in enough money and break sufficiently unimportant enough laws, the, the second one doesn't count that much. And so what the problem with some of these incubators are is they think, okay, my idea is that I need to find these three co-founders and then we need to come up with the pitch and then we need to make the MVP and then we need to pitch the investors and then we need to get the money and then we need to launch the MVP and then we need to, you know, try and get product market fit and then once we have that, we need to scale. Like the reality of starting businesses, of starting anything is so messy. And if we make people think that this works like uh, school, then they're gonna be ill prepared for the like, the messy roller coaster of like all the shit you need to do. Cause they think that there's a, a model and, and Every startup that's successful rewrites its history based on what worked. And so in some ways, looking at and studying successful internet companies or any kind of successful company or, or movement or organization will 
uh, give you a false narrative of what works because uh, the reality is no one, like people were trying hard, they had no idea what would work and they went down a thousand paths and the, a ton of other paths might have also worked too. I would love to ask you the following question. Over your journey, you always have some kind of vision, values, uh, which you actively mani manifest, uh, demonstrate. So I, I would love to ask you, um, did you face some kind of a problems with that? Or it's more, uh, or it's more help you in your journey and fuel you and empower your journey? You know, interestingly, I, I've, I've never actually faced much problems around the articulating a vision and a politics and being passionate about what you're doing. Um, I've uh, done work and talked to people who have a wide variety of politics, um, uh, people who, you know, venture capitalists who voted for Trump, although I really can't understand why they did it. But, um, and uh, I felt very little control or direction or, um, it's actually remarkable how uh, little social regulation there is around the idea that you should be able to include a passionate politics in what you're doing. Um, and I think that to understand why that is, you have to understand that uh, even if you never go to San Francisco, if you work in technology and startups, you're working with a set of cultural values, institutions, traditions that date back to the intersection between academia in the 1960s and 70s and the new left in the United States. And so that's why we consider Silicon Valley companies utopian and why they have this social justice agenda and they talk about how they work and this vision of work and like it dates back to Hewlett Packard, HP, using consensus for how decisions making starting in the 1940s and 50s. Like we're using and traditioning bringing forward these values and because my political values aren't so radically separate from that tradition that even if people don't agree with me, they see the value in the tradition. I fit within the sort of cultural, political, economic traditions of this as sort of one part of the spectrum. And because of that, there's an acceptance and an embracement, embracing of uh, these kind of values. And there's a bunch of other kinds of values that are also totally accepted. Um, but I think that's why uh, if I come with a set of values that were didn't fit within that spectrum and tradition, it would be much harder. And my last question, uh, at some point that I was a much younger in my business card, I have a motto, uh, hackers, painters, and we will develop the clutter. Um, so I would love to ask you, what is your current mission and uh, which kind of umbrella for all of you do uh, in uh, planetary social, in your political activities, and what kind of people you're looking for in your journey in terms of a skill set, values, and vision? So if I have a, a mission, it's that I think the technology we create and use has the ability to transform human potential, transform our ability to connect and collaborate and create a set of institutions which I think have a, a more humane, sustainable, understanding, accepting, diverse, set of values. And so I think that we can build technology 
to do that. I think we can build technology that helps people reshape society. And I think that if you look back in history, there was a time in which we thought there was a, a set in stone uh, divine right of kings. And we thought that kings had the value, like had endorsement from God, and there was nothing to be done about it. And now that idea seems totally crazy. And when we have places that are like dictatorships, we think of it's like this awful thing where someone has just decided that they're in power and they're structuring all this and they use all of this economic, political, military right power to keep themselves in power. Now, at the time of feudalism, we didn't think the king was illegitimate and was using knights and feudalism to stay in power. It seemed natural. And so what we have now in our society seems natural as well. And so what I wanna do is build tools for people to, to, to see that where we're at now is not natural and that we can create a new kind of natural and a new natural that's, that's, uh, doesn't exploit people, that, that doesn't uh, leave some people in abject poverty and other people in massive wealth, that doesn't uh, force people into careers and relationships and families that don't make them happy and self-satisfied. And I think uh, the digital technology and the social software we create can be a tool or even a weapon for people in that struggle to rethink how society works, rethink how their social relationships work, and start articulating a, a more hopeful vision that people can live. 